You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Three months and six days ago, the world watched in shock and horror as the military leadership of Russia invaded the country of Ukraine, killing thousands of people, destroying many towns, creating a massive immigration refugee crisis, millions of people fleeing, and it's not over. 15 days ago, a white 18-year-old fueled by racist hatred for black people in Buffalo, New York, walked into a grocery store and with his gun shot and killed 10 people. Live streaming it that he might increase his audience. Two weeks ago, one day later from that event, a Chinese man walks into a Taiwanese church in California with every intention to kill all of them as a political statement against the Taiwanese people as a Chinese person himself. Thankfully, due to the intervention of others, only one person died, but yet one person died. One week ago, a bombshell report comes out documenting that some leaders of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention had been knowingly documenting sexual abuse reports being given to them of pastors and various churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, but instead of reporting it to other churches that they might be known and never hired again and be turned into the uh, legal system, they hid this information and chose to shame any abuse survivors who would bring it into the light. Five days ago, our nation, and even the world at large, learned of the horror of an 18-year-old who, after shooting his grandmother, went to an elementary school, locked himself in one of the rooms, and murdered 19 children and two adults. What do you do with all of this? How have you been processing this? Where do you go in your mind when these things are learned? And this is not even all of it. This is just the major headlines. Death, disease, suffering happens all around us. Do we distract ourselves with other things, with other news? Do we get angry and turn on each other? Or do we just give up and sit in a bath of hopelessness? The title for my message this morning is Sin, Suffering, and the Eventual Hopelessness. Talking honestly about what to do when life is so hard. The main point of my message this morning is the following. Suffering is the byproduct 
of sinful rebellion against God. And contrary to our fears or our shouts of anger, God does see, God does care, and God does act. Surprisingly, perhaps not in ways we would expect, but through the work and sacrifice of his son to address our ultimate suffering. If you have not yet been tempted with hopelessness in life, I mean this with all due respect to you, you've not lived long enough. You've not seen enough. I don't mean to say you should be hopeless, but I mean to acknowledge the present reality and the temptation for many in different seasons. Hopelessness is that season that often comes during and after suffering. And it it feels like a, a wilderness where you are alone. Though you can be around people, it seems as if no one is present, but the worst of which it feels like God is absent. Author Greg Harris writes the following, quote, The wilderness is not a place as much as it is a condition. What makes the wilderness the wilderness is the appearance of the lack of God's presence. Unfortunately, the problems can be compounded by additional mistakes made by us. Lazy handling of the Bible before a trial that leads us to being unprepared when a trial arrives. Or perhaps during a trial, we go to the wrong source and get bad counsel. Or perhaps after a trial, we have sinful actions in response, anger, selfishness, whatever, which only compounds the problems. One temptation at a time of suffering is to move the conversation away from considering God, His purposes, His plans, His provisions, And this is what often happens. Christians will ask non-Christian professionals or friends for counsel. And it's not that those non-Christians do not want to help or cannot offer some level of temporal help. They can and they do. But it's that they're not able to walk you to the cave of understanding and be able to point into that cave and say, in there, in there, you will find truth that you're looking for. In there is the valley of the shadow of death, but there is a shepherd who walks next to you, who will not abandon you, who hears you. This morning, we want to turn to the scriptures for help. Many of the Holy Spirit inspired writers of the Bible are no strangers to tragedy and trial. Their pages of writing are wet with tears of lament as they have felt that suffering and sorrow, as they've seen it firsthand, as we read their letters and understand their prayer journals of how did they take what they experienced to God? The same God who is ruling today. So first of all, let's consider the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. All people can have a hard time accepting the reality of trials, but I think it could be particularly hard for us as Americans either due to our improvements with health and corresponding lifespan, surgical procedures and other medical improvements, and just overall seemingly promising possibilities through our self-help talk and life improvement coaches, we are an upbeat people. The problem is life keeps tapping us on the shoulder, reminding us of what Ecclesiastes teaches us regularly that we do not want to see, which is this. It's all vanity. 
It's all vanity. In fact, Solomon, who seemingly has done it all, seen it all, experienced it all, says, I can tell you what you want to know. There's nothing at the end of this endless lifelong pursuit. Except he says at the very end to fear God and keep his commandments for in no other place can there be found meaning and purpose. In God's providence, we have a concentration of blessings. Oftentimes we feel safe. We feel healthy. We feel educated. We are insulated from the possibility of suffering. Some of you are from other countries. You have family and grandparents and other places. They know firsthand. They know what it's like to suffer and to be in perpetual poverty, ongoing suffering, There's no co-pays and deductibles. There's no procedures that can be done. They will have that life-altering deformity for the rest of their life, and then they will die. There will be no care. There will be no surgical procedures. There will be no doctors to see. James 1 teaches us that trials come. It's not a question of if they come. It's a question of when. And they are used in God's purposes as tests. Unfortunately, oftentimes our reaction to a trial and our perspective about trials is the opposite of what scripture calls us to. And it's understandable. It's understandable. Because let's speak honestly about trials. No one picks them. No one wants them. And as soon as we experience them, we want them to end as quickly as possible. If you feel that way and you think that way, you're very normal. But God's word is simply saying, wait a second. Wait a second. Let's consider how to respond. James chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are real and they're promised. We do not like this. We even try to leave this part off. I think sometimes Christians can be almost misleadingly dishonest to our non-Christian friends. As if to say, telling them the good news of Jesus will provide for them a life after their surrendering to Christ forevermore happiness, wholeness. It's actually never what Jesus promises. Jesus promises something actually much deeper, something far more more profound and something more needed. Think of the well-known verse, Romans chapter eight, verse 28, which says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But if we're honest, we love this verse because we kind of feel like it's our genie in the bottle verse. Our genie in the bottle verse, like, hey, It's going to happen. And friends, listen to me. This is why prosperity theology has found such a receptive audience in this country and in the world, because our hearts want heaven now. That's the challenge in the reality of this. We want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And we're sold this lie that with a little bit more faith, You too can have it. And if you don't have it, well, then you need to have a little bit more faith and conveniently place an offering of faith, financially speaking, of course. 
Romans 8, 28 seems like it's the perfect verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So you're like, well, you don't maybe love God enough. If you love God enough, you'll get the job you've been wanting, the girl you've been wanting, the house you've been waiting and raising your money for. You will get it. And friends, let's consider the context of Romans 8. If we interpret good in a selfish, materialistic way, we'll miss the whole point of the passage. The context here in the passage and for the audience is that bad things are happening. You know who is their president? A guy named Nero. Trust me, I don't care where you are in the political spectrum today. You've never had a president like Nero. I don't care if you're pro-Trump or pro-Biden. You've never met Nero. Nero is not just a president. He is a Caesar. He rules over the land with all authority. Whatever he says goes, including arresting Christians, covering them with tar, putting them on stakes, and lighting the streets with their bodies on fire to light the way. That's his version of public electricity. That's who is the leader of the Roman Empire, and the capital city of that Roman Empire is in the city of Rome. Now, these are those Christians reading this letter get a feel for suffering, for trial. You can hear the question. Romans chapter 8, the very end, answers this for us. He's talking about faith and will it hold. Paul says this to the Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 38, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is telling us in the midst of such misery, we can be assured that God is present and he is working and he is not forgetting his promise to keep loving us. D.A. Carson writes regarding this, quote, that sort of promise, referring to this very end of Romans 8, has to be taken on faith and faith that is strong because of the proof God has already given us of his love for us, the proof that is nothing less than the gift of his son. Here's an important point I want us to consider about the reality of suffering. The problem is not the questions we ask. The problem is the timing. Here's what I mean. What's a common question you and I ask when we experience suffering? Why God? Why? The question's not a bad question. The problem is the timing. Here's what I mean. Our question of why is placed after a situation of suffering. As if the suffering is exceptional, surprising, unexpected, and undeserved. Versus that question, why, Lord? Why would you do this? being placed after a time of blessing. Here's my point. We've come to expect that we deserve blessing. We have no questions to ask there. 
We do not deserve suffering. We have tons of questions there. When we flip the orientation of the timing of the questions, asking it after suffering, not after blessing, we've said, we've showed something about our hearts. We're surprised what God has already revealed to us, which is, listen, there are going to be consequences. He told us to Adam in the very beginning, if you disobey, there will be consequences. And those consequences have been ushered throughout all of society since then. We live in a broken, corrupt, virus-filled, sin, overwhelmingly crushing world. The problem is not how the sin get here. We know how the sin got here. We are complicit in some form or fashion in that. The problem is, why is God still choosing to give any blessings in light of all of our rebellion? We've come to expect God's grace, feel entitled to it, and not in any way expect to find suffering. Challenge that we have to ask is why are we receiving any of God's grace in our life? Where is God? This is a question many people ask. Where is God in the midst of these trials? Well, that takes us now to our second lesson. I want us to learn from the models of suffering. The first one is the reality of suffering. The second one is the models of suffering. Our first model I want us to consider is Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is basically documenting the tragedy of what's taken place in the land of Israel since they have been overrun by an opposing nation. And it makes what's going on in Ukraine look domestic by comparison of how bad it is. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Jeremiah says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground, meaning he's throwing up. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Jumping down to verse 21, he says, In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women, my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You've summoned as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Look at chapter 3, verse 48, or just listen as I read it to you. Chapter 3, verse 48 of Lamentations. He says the following, as far as how he interacts with reflects, he says, My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The man knows suffering. He has seen it. He has experienced it. His cheeks are covered with tears flowing from his eyes. And yet... Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and following. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What is this? Is this a schizophrenic writer? Somebody just caught up in mass denial? No, it's, it's somebody 
writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach us to see what we do not instinctively by default see. We see with our eyes so naturally. He wants us to see with our heart, trustingly, who the Lord is, what he is doing, and the plan that he is accomplishing. It's not just Jeremiah as our first model, it's Job. Think about the book of Job, which for those of you who are new to the Bible, it's not Job, it's Job. His property and his possessions are taken from him. His 10 children are killed. His health is stripped away. His surviving wife calls him to despair, telling him to curse God and die. His friends blame it all on him. (laughs) That's the thanks he gets for being godly. Job chapter one says he was the most righteous man in all the land. Modern vernacular, he was a total stud. He loved the Lord. And this is how God repays you. This is how God says, thank you for being honorable. The conversation that happens between Satan and the Lord, what Satan does to basically mock God that basically Job only follows the Lord when the Lord blesses. Satan basically says to God, let me touch him and I'll prove my point. He'll curse you. He is only in this with you because of what you give him by blessing. If you let me take away the blessings, I'll prove to you his faith will not last. One of the major lessons of the book of Job is the nature of persevering faith. What does Job say in response to all these trials? Job chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A third model is none other than Jesus himself. And for that, I want you to see it. With your own eyes, go to Matthew 27. By way of introduction to a text that we're going to pick up on in a couple of weeks. The next three weeks, we're going to have a break from Matthew as Ronald, Trevor, and Chris do a three-week series on friendship and Christian fellowship. So we will return to this text after that series, but I want to introduce it to you. And for those of you who are with us for the first time today, it is our normal practice to go through books of the Bible, studying them together. We've been working our way through Matthew. I'm going to make reference to this text now, but we're going to return back to it in more detail. But for our purposes, I want you to see the third model of suffering. No one less than Jesus himself, the son of God. As we see in Matthew 27, Verse 26, he's already been scourged. Now in verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reel in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him on the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man, Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who should destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. He died. There's no one in this room who's experienced him out of injustice and suffering that Jesus of Nazareth has. There's no one in this room that can claim the entitlement of blessing, of health, of affection, of security that Jesus could claim. Because he is the son of God. Paul would later say in Philippians 2, he was at the right hand of the Father, and he condescends to become a human like us. So then becoming like us, he might live on behalf of us, fulfilling the law of God. His thanks for that? Crucifixion. Even rejection by God the Father For God the Father would treat God the Son as if God the Son had committed every sin that all of His people had committed. That even Jesus would cry out, Why have you forsaken me? 
Did the father forsake Jesus? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who, who, who knew, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteous of God. So God the Father treated God the Son as if God the Son committed all of our sins and therefore rejected him as rightly deserved. But yet no to the question because in his resurrection, the payment was made, all atonement had been offered, the ransom had been given, and now the relationship was there. And that's why we see Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without a resurrection, all of our faith is in vain. But because of our resurrection, because of the resurrection rather, our hope in Christ is not in vain. Here's the point. The point is this. There is no one who understands rejection more than Christ. Christ himself is crying out on a crucified cross, why have you forsaken me? How many of us have felt that way? I have. I have. I've got to imagine I'm not the only person in this room who's felt like that. Do you not see me, God? Do you not care? Do you not care about my suffering? Do not see my family? Have I not done the following right things? Why, why will you not hear my prayers? Why is this person over there seemingly doing well? And as best as I can know, they're not that well. They're not that well. Honestly, I'm not trying to be self-righteous, God, but I'm just saying, I think I'm doing better than they are. I think I'm, I think I'm a good person better than they are. Why are they not suffering and I am? I've got questions. I feel like you've rejected me, God. You felt like that? I have. Why have you forsaken me? The problem is where we're looking. We're looking at the circumstance. And we're not looking at the cross. God is trying to take our circumstances, our gaze from our circumstances, and turn our attention to the cross and say, look there. Look there. I rejected him so I could accept you. I treated him so I could forgive you. He was crucified according to my divine plan so that I would adopt you. One day, you will be reunited with him. But until then, he stands at the right hand of my throne as a great high priest interceding on your behalf. Do I love you? Look at my crucified son to see that I love you. That's what God is saying in his word here, friends. What have we to learn from these models? Jeremiah we should watch monumental trial and tragedy and listen. Job, we should watch unimaginable sorrow and suffering and learn. And Jesus, we should watch incomprehensible sacrifice and love and place our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Which takes us to our third lesson, the solution to suffering. What do we need most when our heart aches and our hurts are felt deeply? More than anything else, we need God. 
I don't need answers. I need assurance. The scripture is what offers that assurance. Unfortunately, God is known by many Christians before the trials in such a light way, in such an incomplete way, that when they enter into a season of trials, they're disoriented because they don't know God that well. We need to know our Bibles better long before our sorrow and our suffering arriving on our front door. Listen to what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, You Can Trust God. He says, in order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not of sense. And just as the faith of salvation comes through hearing the gospel, Romans 10, 17, so the faith to trust God in adversity comes through the word of God alone. It is only in scripture that we find an adequate view of God's relationship to and involvement in our painful circumstances. It is only from the scriptures applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we receive the grace to trust God in our adversities. One of the psalmists being crushed in a circumstance. Listen to how he describes it in Psalm 42, verses six and seven. He says, my soul is cast down within me. Deep calls to deep, but the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He says in verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. So what is the solution? Well, he answers the question. And this is what he says in verse five of Psalm 42. He says, why are you cast down? O my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Sit in Psalm 34. Listen to the adversity when he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, sometimes the challenge put to Christianity by, by skeptics of Christianity is that it's a religion of sweet by and by. It's an old fable, old days, kept alive by sentimental people who need religion as a crutch, but haven't been released and set free by the gift of science and other type of developments that realizes we don't need this stuff anymore. That is a way to view the world. Everybody views the world a certain way. The problem with viewing it that way is that they have no better solution to offer Furthermore, part of that blame lays at the feet of Christianity because sometimes Christianity has presented itself as only being this happy, clappy Christianity. Always praising, never lamenting. Always rejoicing, never pleading. That's an incomplete reading of the Bible. If you're getting that view of Christianity, either as a Christian or as a non-Christian, you've not read the Bible very thoroughly. I don't mean that to shame you. I mean that just to tell you honestly. What I'm so thankful, what I'm so thankful as a Christian is that there is no human experience I have yet or will yet experience or that I will see others experience that is not in some way spoken of and covered in the scriptures that God says, I see, I care, I know, and I'm dealing with this. What happens in trials is that they often expose, we weren't prepared for the trial. The point there is to be ready, to stand responsibly, to read honestly the word of God. Now, I understand 
Some of you perhaps are here as visitors. You're like, wow, this is a rather serious church. This guy's rather serious. He's like got a broken hand. He's still going at it. My point is I think it would be insensitive. I think it'd be unhelpful to be, keep reading his headlines and act like we don't see it. To keep knowing that there's death and loss in our congregation and we're not going to talk about it. We see it. We feel it. We are people who rejoice and we're people who weep. We're people who celebrate. We're people who mourn. And that's not us living kind of a schizophrenic reality. That's the reality of a broken world that God is still in the midst of and doing a mysterious but good work. And my hope is not in what I see with my eyes, but what I see with my heart by believing what is historically true. The son of God becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross as a substitute, resurrecting from the grave physically, three years later, appearing to more than 500 witnesses, that all those who would trust in him for the forgiveness of sins would not only have eternal life promised to them in the future, but for the first time in their life, be set free from the power of sin and how it taints how they view the world. That is hope for today, not just for tomorrow. And I want to make sure that you as Christians feel clear as a point of your own encouragement and commissioned as a point of your opportunity to share that with others. Weep with those who weep in our society. You can see the anger, right? Can you see it in the headlines? We want so bad to find out who's responsible for this. What law should we pass? What action should we take? What leaders should we blame? What person should we do? And I don't mean to act as if those questions are completely and always irrelevant, but I mean to say that is indicative of so much pain and confusion and suffering. And we mean to come alongside and say, I would like to contribute to this conversation when you're ready. But I'd like us to not look where I think we've been looking as a country. I'd like us to look where I think we should be looking in the page of scripture. Understand that God who has created this world and who is still running this world and what he is doing to even bring beauty from ashes. That is our hope because he has been doing it for thousands of years and he's not stopping today. And those testimonies of baptism, those are like micro testimonies that illustrate that point. And I hope for you, if you're not in Christ, that you would consider that today and even give your life to Christ. Say, I've got nothing else. I have no other place to find peace and hope. I give my life to Christ for the forgiveness of my sins that I might not know not just temporal suffering, but eternal suffering. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.